to Raising Joyful and Resilient Black Children podcast, where we bridge conversations from parenting to child well-being and social justice, and we provide resources and tools for parents connected to research that matters to us and to our community. I'm Dr. Valerie Adams-Bass. And I am Dr. Sharita Butler-Barnes. Let's get started. I am very excited to have today's guest on because Dr. Nicole Joseph has been such an inspiration to the work that I do as a developmental psychologist and especially her research surrounding Black girls in math. And um, even within my own work, I used her work as a way to sort of center Black girls' voices in spaces where they were invisible and to really understand from a developmental lens how was being a Black girl in a math space, how did that impact their identity of who they wanted to be and how they saw themselves. So it was that intersection between race and gender. And so today I am excited to have Dr. Nicole Joseph on. She is the author of Making Black Girls Count in Math Education. She is an associate professor of mathematics and science education in the Department of Teaching and Learning at Vanderbilt University. She is also the founder of the Tennessee March for Black Women in STEM, an event held every fall which seeks to bring together the Tennessee community to raise awareness of the gendered racism, Black women, and girls' experiences in STEM. Dr. Joseph, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's so exciting to be here with both of you. I'm looking forward to a good conversation. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So just to get started, share with us what influenced you to pursue a career in mathematics, just so our audience can get a feel of what Black Girl Magic and, and math is. Black so Girl let's Magic. Talk about math it. Magic. Come right? on, right? Black Girl Math Magic. It's just, I'm excited. Math Magic. Yeah, mm-hmm. what made you? Yeah, well, speaking of that, I've connected with Brittany Rhodes, Black Girl Math Magic, So that's exciting. Um, You know, I've always really enjoyed math. I would have to say that I was a student who knew how to do school, like traditional schooling. And I actually opened up my book with the vignette of when I was in the third grade. And there was a teacher who we were doing math. I was raising my hand. She didn't call on me. I didn't know my mom was standing outside. And basically you know, in this like 15, 20 minute conversation between my mom and the teacher, my life was changed because my mom said, you're racist Mm. and I'm moving my daughter today. And so the only courses that were available or not courses, but classroom was the so-called, you know, honors classroom. So when I got in there, third grade with Mr. Johnson, I'm sure these teachers have long passed away. I just flourished. And back then, it wasn't like they were doing any kind of deep, innovative teaching methodologies. They were doing straight up old school. And in fact, they ordered me a fourth grade book because I just zoomed through that third grade book, all that little math work. I was like, bring it. (laughs) Oh, wow. But I like to tell people, share with the audience that I was a student that did well with traditional schooling. But once I became a teacher, a math teacher, that type of instruction was not great. It wasn't effective for a lot of students. So when I finished, you know, K-12 school, I mean, I had pretty much fallen in love with math. Just the power that you have when you can solve problems, those kinds of things. And then I went to undergrad and majored in economics and math and 
it was, you know, a lot harder then. But again, there was just something about the power. And then I decided, you know, to become a math teacher because I wanted students, Black students at the time to understand the power that this tool can give you. And once I became a teacher, it really was about not for the sake of just saying you can do math, but to really understand how this tool can help you understand your own life, your community, problems that you care about, the power of math in that way. And so that's what really, you know, inspired me because my mom advocated for me on that day. And I'm going to be advocating for Black girls Mm -hmm. until y'all put me in the grave. That's it. That's it. Mm -hmm. Right, right, right. That's it. Absolutely. And Valerie... Did you want to ask something? Because I just have one more little question to ask because I'm so excited about this conversation. Yeah, yeah. No, I think I'm, I'm, I'm just, mm-hmm, yes, this is great. Right. No, I think go right ahead. I just would love to hear if you tell, like, what's your favorite math area, mm-hmm. content area? Or what can you recall what your favorite content area is for those who have little learners who are, you know, practicing their math yeah. magic? Yeah, you know, I think algebra was really exciting for me you know, functions and solving equations. But when I was a teacher, because I taught fifth grade, sixth grade, really helping students to understand fractions. I think fractions is one of the most difficult concepts that students have to learn. Um, In large part, because you guys know that operations of fractions, so the four operations, addition, subtraction, multiplication, division, It changes when you move from whole numbers to fractions, right? So that's a cognitive obstacle that it takes a lot of work for students to get over, right? And because when you start getting in upper elementary and middle school, all of the fun manipulatives begin to like disappear, which is terrible. But Mm -hmm. fractions, I think, is, you know, I want to tell parents, I know that's a question later, But that is an area that we really need to support our girls in learning and understanding our fractions. So unit fractions, improper fractions, all of those things and understanding what a fraction actually is. Absolutely. And I think we're all excited, like, ooh, 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 math. (laughs) Right, right. I want to just sort of segue into what you were saying. My daughter's birthday is coming up. We want to keep it practical. And she said, Mom, am I six and a half? I said, no, you have one more month. How many months in the year? She said, 12. I said, so how many months have passed? She said, 11. I said, so you're six and 11 twelfths. So these practical ways, that's a whole mouthful for a six-year-old. But I said, you're six and 11 twelfths, right? And then we talk about after five, do you round up or do you round down? So Mm. even, you know, sometimes when we just look at the paper and do math, the basic way, it's a hard concept, as you said. But when we make it practical, then sometimes they can catch hold of it, right? And so- Yeah. And there's more meaning. And there's more meaning. More meaning. Right, right. So, you know, you're beyond six and a half because six months is half of the year. So absolutely. I just wanted to follow up on what, you know, Nicole is saying about these different ways of approaching fractions as we can do it if we think about the Mm day-to-day ways that we live and interact with our children, even if we aren't formal teachers. That's right. I know you have a couple No, I was actually in that song, Valerie, to what you said. And so when you were talking, Nicole, you mentioned something about traditional. What does traditional look like in terms of teaching math? 
And then sort of bridging that together with what Valerie was saying, like that informal sort of math learning to sort of the culturally responsive that sort of matters. Can you distinguish between the two for our audience? Traditional is the teachers at the front of the room, at the board. They are doing a problem Mm. step by step by step. Students are in rows, facing forward, taking notes. Um, And, you know, sometimes the professor, the teacher calls on you and sometimes not. When the when the teacher is done showing and telling, those are key words. Showing and telling. The showing and telling. (laughs) Tell. Mm -hmm. The students go to page 495 and do problems one through 30 odd, right? And try to figure out those problems. So that's traditional learning. Memorization, procedures, just listening, very Mm -hmm. um, inactive learning because the professor's doing all of the talking. That's traditional teaching. And in 2023, I don't care what city you go into, in this country and probably in others, that is what you are going to see most often. That's what I is remember. Is that type of experience. Mm-hmm. Now, the reason why that's not effective is what I said. It's showing, it's telling students are, you know, basically inactive. And so that doesn't help you to make connections, to really understand the purpose of math. So we do need more culturally responsive instruction and teaching, right? Mm -hmm. So that, I mean, even if somebody didn't even do quote unquote culturally responsive teaching, but they just changed their pedagogy from teacher doing all the talking to students getting to share their work in small groups, doing some projects, you know, around things that are important to them. If it was just more interactive, Mm -hmm. Just doing that alone would help a lot of students, you know, black girls and beyond, (laughs) because then you have more opportunities to engage in really understanding the purpose of math. And honestly, you know, you don't need to do 40 problems to demonstrate that you understand an idea. You know, Mm. you probably only need to do like three, but more importantly, how do you apply that? If you think of Webb's depth of knowledge or if yeah. you think of Bloom's, if you're old school with Bloom's, you know, how do we mm-hmm. move up to like analysis, creation, you know, and using math to do those things? Ooh. Very good. Thank you for that. And so the book highlights the invisibility of Black girls in society and mathematics. How does the invisibility of Black girls specifically affect their educational journey and interest in math? What does that look like and why? So Black girls, as you know, both of you know, really suffer from two main, I would say, stereotypes. One is criminalization. This is why you see on TV a five-year-old in handcuffs being removed from a class, right? And along with that is this idea of adultification, so if you've never read the report called Black Girlhood Interrupted by Epstein. Gonzalez, Epstein, uh-huh. yes. Like, you know, mm-hmm. I literally wept, y'all, when I first read that report Sorry. that basically just said everyday Americans walking down the street. I think their sample was kind of small, 320 people or something like that. These were educated folks. I think a large majority of the population were white. 
But basically what the conclusion is that these folks adultify Black girls, mm-hmm. meaning that they consider them more adult. So some of the conclusions were they need less nurturing, they need less comforting, really hardcore conclusions. So when I went to go look at the graph or whatever, I was thinking, surely this, oops, I almost cussed. Surely (laughs) this starts at like 15, but it starts at age five. Yes. So when we have educators, teachers, people that are internalizing these stereotypes about Black girls and they're not trying to dig deeper to really understand a more complex narrative about who they are, Mm -hmm. that makes teachers, math teachers specifically, make Black girls invisible. They can't see them, right? So when they see Black girls, they don't see future mathematicians, future scientists. What they see are little problems too loud, you're talking too much, right? Because they have internalized, many of them have internalized these stereotypes. Yeah, absolutely. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's a really yeah. important mm-hmm. way yes, that yes. they become invisible. Mm-hmm. And Black girls, my empirical work is showing, no, 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 no. They need more mathematics, right. not less. Mm-hmm. They want to be challenged. They want to do interesting mathematical problems, Mm -hmm. but because they are made to be invisible in these spaces, because teachers hold low expectations, they don't think that they are intellectual. The paper by Ray, I think is the last name. You have teachers that are saying that Black girls aren't even intellectual, (laughs) you know, which is false, a lie from the pit. But Again, when you have all of these narratives, these what I call master narratives that are in society, Mm -hmm. that are in schools, you got to do some work to really interrogate and disrupt that foolishness. Yes. You know? Yeah. So those are ways about, you know, as far as them being invisible in math. Yeah. Right. And I think, you know, there are a couple of things that you said, Nicole, that really compound the experience that Black girls have in school. So one thing is sort of these stereotype media representations that start as early as five years old. Yes. And it's only recently with the advent of social media that we have more scholars and more institutions paying attention to how insidious and how impactful these stereotypes are in everyday spaces and daily interactions. And certainly that's an area of research for me, looking at media stereotypes and what Mm -hmm. is the impact. So not just the impact on how the young people are understanding or consuming, but how others are perceiving them. So that's super important. This idea that Black girls are loud. So, you know, there's, as you said, there's that paper where they say the loudies, right? And so not only are they seen as problematic, but they're not seen as scholars, Right. right. So girls are not seen as scholars. And then in some cases, if they're not seen as scholars, then they're seen as sort of peacekeepers. Again, not as scholars, not as learners. So they're either a problem or a peacekeeper. And that narrative is thrust upon them versus allowing them to have. And that could be some of the assets that they have that add to contribute to their magic. 
but then that represses or silences yeah, you know, right. that space where they get to emerge as scholars. And that's, that's right. why I think it's really relevant, even the example I gave, that we think of these spaces in and out of school where we can right. encourage our girls, our young women, our girls, our, our early childhood learners you know, yep. to do that math, right? To figure yeah. that math out. Yeah. And so it's super important so that when they're pressed upon, they may not have a mother who's outside of the classroom door, but they will have the agency to, to, to come home and ask the question or even to ask that teacher. Yeah. yeah. People think that there's a particular profile of what someone looks That's like, it. sounds like, feels like if you're a strong math student. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that means you're focused. That means you ain't looking around, talking to nobody. You are like they have a particular type of profile of what that looks like. So when a Black girl steps into the room and is bringing her ways of knowing mathematics, it's not oftentimes received. Mm -hmm. And so because she doesn't look like white middle class, either other white girls or, you know, white males. So mathematics as a discipline also perpetuates this anti-intellectual sort of factor, if you will, because they're looking for kids to have these, you know, four characteristics, for example, Mm -hmm. in order for a teacher to say, oh, yeah, she's a strong math student, right? And so what I have learned in my work is that Things like interest, recognition, belonging, those are really important factors for strong math identities. Hmm. So how is a Black girl supposed to like develop a strong interest in math if you're not giving her any opportunities in your class to shine, right? To go deeper, to, you know, work on projects, like for real, you know, so... It's a challenging space in our K-12 classrooms for our girls. So, Nicole, when you say that, you know, I'd love for you then, which is a great segue to talk about, like, so you say these are four attributes that you've identified empirically, meaning through your research and your observations with Black girls, that this is what gets them excited and maintains their excitement and interest in math. So how does that relate to when you started to rub up against, you know, this next question that I'm thinking of, which is, How, in contrast, if you will, can you speak to how the intersectionality of race and gender and white supremacy play into math for girls, for Black girls, right? Because you're saying these are the four things I know, right? It's a head shake and a... But it's so true. But it's... You know, how how does it relate, right? So you're saying here are the four things, but here are the other things. So speak to us. Basically, this is how I've earned tenure. You know, my contribution was to use intersectionality methodologies, theoretical frameworks to really help us understand Black girls' experiences in a math context, Mm. right? So the role of intersectionality and Black girlhood has really helped, I think, to elevate what is special about Black girls. Why should we be focused on them? And so when you think about like you have macro level, micro level, meso level. Mm-hmm. Macro level is basically white supremacy. Period. <laughs> right. Right. So for our listeners, macro level is like that entire system of the entire system and moving and so our that policies, the way that girls that's right. Policies, how black law, girls are disciplined and a, all of the discipline, all of, all yes. of it and that broad yeah. spectrum. Yes. And a very important macro structure in math is tracking. 
Mm-hmm. So we start tracking black girls. Well, we start tracking all kids in third grade. Yeah. So, you know, they try to hide it with the yellow jaybirds and the, you know, the oh, blue, the group, whatever. The groups. But the, the kids, the, the kids know what group they are in, yeah. mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And then when you get to middle school is when it becomes super consequential because it's very hard to get off of these tracks when you have been placed on them. So if you are on the low track or whatever, then it's probably going to be very difficult for you to get into the high school math courses that you need in order to have options for college, right? Because any school that's decent institution, higher ed institution is going to be looking for three years of mathematics, Mm. right? More selective institutions are looking for four years of math. Calculus, right? Mm -hmm. So tracking is a very, I think, good example of what we mean by the macro systems. And tracking is very much embedded in the interests, values, attitudes of white middle-class folks. And there have been a lot of districts that have tried to detract, but parents who have a lot of time, power, oh my God, they push back. back. Because Mm -hmm. my child is super smart. They shouldn't be held back or, you know what I mean, from these other students. So that's an example of a structural situation that our math education system utilizes that basically disrupts a lot of opportunities for Black girls. So just to make sense, like to our parents and our caregivers, and even to other advocates who are in the room or in the village for our Black girls, you'll hear us say this almost every episode. Mm-hmm. You know, we're going to give you the research and we're going to give you the practice. You got You have to advocate, right? And if you, you sure say, do. And I plain like, girl, you better get on up there. Dude, you better go check on your child. You've got to advocate. And I say that from the perspective That's of... Right. As scholars, we're on here, we're scholars. So we know the language, what the yellow tadpoles mean versus, you know, the green crabs or whatever (laughs) the term is at your school, your school district. But sometimes our parents don't know that and the teachers or the principals Mm -hmm. will try to talk us out of when we say, meaning black parents, and it's sometimes a black kid saying, I'm bored from this traditional approach where I know that already. They will try to talk us out of, push my child. Or my child belongs in a different space. Now, there's a distinction between saying, I just want to keep my child to keep up and they really can't. And then we have to do the tutoring. We have to do some things at home. We have to ask for extra work at school or help at school. But when you know and your child knows innately that they can do more and they need to be challenged, then we have to keep pushing and help them understand that there are different ways to approach this learning with my child and understand or say, okay, well, what does the green tadpole do differently from, or the yellow tadpole do differently from the green crab? Yes. And if you, as a parent, understand what well, my child is doing that at home, or a guardian, or auntie, whoever is able to make that observation, then that's what we're advocating. That's where we're saying, well, I'd like my child to have the same crab soup even though she's in the tab hole. Right. That's right. <laughs> that's, that's, that's right. right. That's right. I want her to be on the beach. And then parents don't take no for an answer because I will tell you when I took the little so-called gifted test or whatever, I didn't pass that test, but I had a counselor, Mrs. Bennett, God rest her soul. She said, I'm sorry, you're going into the honors program anyway. Hmm. So you have people in yes. these schools who can make decisions that are based on what is good for the students to push back on these metrics and measures that are ingrained with white 
supremacy. That's it. You know what I'm saying? Like it's those measures were not designed with our kids in mind. At all. No, they were not. At all. So, you know, yeah, don't take no for an answer and fight for our girls to be in these programs. And I know I'm skipping to like a future question, but, you know, fight for our girls to be in these important programs. No, but I think it's a good segue into ways that parents, I mean, you provided ways that parents can increase the visibility and participation of girls in math. If there's anything else you want to add to that, but also any programs and organizations that parents can sort of utilize the access, because we were talking about social capital We're saying that some folks might still, you know, they're in there, but to partner with the organization, but that informal learning is so important too. And so is there any advice you can get on um, any additional information about increasing visibility and participation in math and programs and organizations? Yeah. So Black Girls Do STEM is an informal organization that's in St. Louis, Cynthia Chapel. I'm giving her a shout out because when I tell you She is serving the zip codes in St. Louis that don't nobody want to be bothered with. And these young ladies are killing it. Mm. You know why? Because they are in informal learning spaces that allow them to be human, that allow them to bring their full humanities to this space. They are loved. They are cared for. They are held to high expectations. So that's one. And then Dr. Natalie King in Georgia, at Georgia State, I mean, she probably been doing that informal summer program for like 15 years. And she has recently been funded through the NSF with a career award. I was so like happy for her. But those are like two that I know of. Then Black Girl Math Magic, Black Girl Math Jick. That's Brittany. Basically, she has subscriptions of different Black women mathematicians as a box. So Mm. inside of that box, becomes, you know, there's all kind of math activities. So that's something that Black parents can also subscribe to. And I can give you the links oh, and thank all that you kind so of much. stuff. I can also send you, I put together during COVID, a list of things for parents to do for Black girls related oh, to mathematics. Awesome. It ain't cute. You know, it ain't, it's just a Word document, but I was trying to support Black parents during that time. Mm-hmm. And I'm happy to send that you know, to you all as well, if you really feel like that's helpful. It. Well, definitely be helpful. We, we're happy to have that. I know we're, we could go on forever talking about math on a Friday night. I don't mind being called a nerd. Same. It's a good thing to be a nerd. <laughs> <laughs> the library is one of my well, favorite Well, you, you're fabulous. You're fabulous nerd. Yes. Thank you. Appreciate it. We all are fabulous. Yes, you know? yes. Four women with four eyes. How much better could it get? <laughs> so it. I do want to ask Nicole, as we wrap up, I want to ask you two things. One, I want to ask you if you could just tell us two of your favorite Black female mathematicians, if you could tell us that. And then I want to end on that, you know, because this is about raising joyful and resilient Black children. So two of your favorite Black female mathematicians. And then tell us what is pie and what did you do on pie day? (laughs) The Joseph, the master magic Black female (laughs) mathematician. Yeah, so I would definitely say Katherine Johnson. And so if you haven't seen Hidden Figures, parents, make sure you see that and show your daughters that movie. But Katherine Johnson is a progenitor, you know, an innovator to be able to be at NASA dealing with all that foolishness of white supremacy and still holding her own Mm -hmm. around being a strong mathematician. 
But the beautiful thing is that we also saw her as a wife, as a mother, as a community member, as a leader. And so she was much more expansive than just, you know, being a number cruncher at NASA, right? I think the other person would be Gloria Gilmore, who I'm not sure if she is deceased or not, but she went into industry. She was not fully encouraged to engage in mathematics you know, in terms of like research and professorship. So, you know, Black people going to do what they going to do. So <laughs> she created a whole career and wrote like math curriculum and still had a long career of, you know, supporting African-American communities in math. So I would say those are two, and both of those are like historical people, mm-hmm. but I would say those are two that I really care about. I honestly did not celebrate Pi, but Pi 3.14 is a measure that we can use in order to think about circumference. And people celebrate it because all of these relationships to like eating pie, like apple pie and all of those things. Black parents, raising joyful. You know, my book is all about like, how do we support Black girls to develop joy and liberation in mathematics? And... I believe that Black women who are in mathematics can lead this charge. I talk about this in my book. I lay it out. I lay the vision out, y'all, for us because we just can't wait. They're not going to do it. Mm -hmm. So we have to engage in these informal learning spaces, supporting our girls, developing their math identities, and get them strong and robust. So then they can go into these schools and deal with the foolishness because they're going to have advocacy skills. They're going to be able to hold teachers accountable. And all of the work should not be on them. This should be a solidarity project between Mm -hmm. them, their teachers, their families, society. And so, you know, I'm trying to lead the Black feminist radical, you know, revolution for Black girls because I believe they all deserve these opportunities of math literacy, whether they want to major in math or become a mathematician or not is up to them, but I want them to have the option. The option and the skill, right? So we want to thank you, Dr. Joseph, for joining us. And I think it's the option and the skill. So even if they go on to do something else, they can count their money quickly, right? They can see if that interest is accurate, right? And so we you know, just understanding and capitalizing on math. And if we are a little nervous as parents, let's just learn right along with them so that when it comes down to it, they are empowered in their knowledge and they can apply it inside and outside Mm -hmm. of the classroom. Mm -hmm. So we are just so excited with the joy that you bring for math. We are just totally just, you know, excited that you're willing to share in your advocacy for Black girls and for Black women in STEM, right? So we thank you for just being that beacon, right? Absolutely. Beacon, right? Like being that beacon. And you are an influence and a guiding light for us who are doing this work as well, too. So we are all disruptors. And so thank you for Mm -hmm. taking that lead. Thank you. Thank you. Thank y'all for having me on. Thank you so very much. And so, again, we're grateful for our guests who who 
come visit us like Dr. Nicole Joseph and for our audience who are learning more about how to be magical mathematicians and how to raise magical mathematician girls, Black girls specifically. And again, I'm Valerie. And I'm Sharita Butler-Burns. And this is Raising Joyful and Resilient Black Children, and it is a part of the Alive Podcast Network. This podcast was created and produced by Dr. Jacqueline Dujay and edited by Manny Simon of Vita Productions. Follow, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Take us with you. Go to whatisblack.co, whatisblack.co for parenting resources and tools. And while you're there, you can also sign up for our monthly newsletter. We're going to make sure that the resources that Dr. Joseph shares with us makes it to that space. And you can also follow us on social media, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at whatisblack, W-H-A-T. I-S-B-L-K. We're Dr. Valerie Adams-Bass. And Dr. Sharita Butler-Barnes. Thank you all for listening.